0: Um, and then I get, so we fly back at the end of the week and I felt a little weird all week, but I didn't feel terrible. I get back within three hours of getting back. I had for like three days, the worst stomach virus I've had in like Mm. years. It was Mm. just awful. It was just, but but I got back to the apartment before it happened. So. Okay. Oh yeah. So you weren't like in transit and (laughs) dying. (laughs) I wasn't in
1: an Uber and like, I really (laughs) got a poo. The cleaning fee's not that much, right? (laughs) 250 No.
0: Oh my god. <laughs> so yeah, so it was a fun time. Hey, we're back. They tried to keep us down. They tried to, they, us being us,
1: tried to get rid of us. Well, I mean, it's been a couple weeks, but (laughs) things have happened. Alex and I are officially now both masters of science. We are. It's great. Which is how I'm going to refer to that fact that we now (laughs) Airbending masters. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly how that works. Uh, So
0: welcome to the farmhouse. My name's Alex Hobbs. Jordan Smart. And our guest today is... Ashley Smart. Ashley Smart. Um, any 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 relation to, to Jordan Jordan Smart.
2: Weird. Uh, I took his last name because I thought people might think I was smart. <laughs> but yes, I'm his wife.
1: Great, yeah. great. Yeah, getting getting a little outside of Stanford, but keeping it close to home. Yeah. Uh, in that, in that particular way.
0: Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Ashley? What you what you work on and, and how you where you're at now and, and, and that sort of stuff.
2: Sure, yeah. I'm a First year PhD student um, at University of California, Davis. I am in the ecology PhD program, but um, my focus is on marine ecology, specifically with climate change and looking at how organisms will adapt to climate change. Um, I haven't fully begun my research yet, because cool. I just do all my classes in a first year in Makes a mad sense. dash. Um, But this summer I'm going to be starting on my research, which is looking into uh, using this sea slug as a model organism to understand um, how they adapt or not adapt, how they respond to acidified oceans in using um, neurological, physiological and behavioral aspects to fully Quantify their response and then apply this to other organisms that are taxonomically similar And then try to scale up to their for, to ecosystems and humans.
0: Wow, that sounds really cool yeah. <laughs> um, Have you so you haven't started any research yet But you've started sort of planning out what you're gonna do it sounds like
2: yeah, so I have to actually acquire the organisms because we oh, all, yeah. <laughs> They're native to California, but we'll be okay. getting them from Miami um, okay, and cool. then I have to design the protocol because in the way that I want to look at this, I, it's, I'm looking at responses, right? So I mm-hmm. have to plan out in what order they're actually experiencing these and how frequently they're experiencing that. Cause that will largely change the response, right? There's right. Sure. whenever you have an organism in a container, you can experience effects from not only it being contained, mm-hmm. but for the period it's contained mm-hmm. and the responses change over the duration of time. So you can see a really neat effect in the first 2 weeks, but that may diminish as it acclimates to its habitat. That's so really cool. Um thinking about those now. And um that's probably going to be the majority of my PhD research. I'll nice. be doing some community interactions, understanding how cuz first I'm starting with just a single organism. Sure. But that's not um fully representative of the complexity that we know ecosystems to be and yeah. communities. So I'm then going to branch out and look at community or um, organismal interactions mm-hmm. to try to fully quantify this response in kind of more of a realistic environment.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I have many questions about that, but I don't want to dive too far in because I think we also want to save some of the research uh, questions for later. And also, I also don't want to dive into something that you haven't started working on yet. And and. Oh
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but I guess just one quick question to add before we move on. For that, is it largely observation based or is it uh, experimentation?
2: Um, so, at, at the, I'm kind of looking at this through a scaling approach. Where first, I'm thinking of the organism, which is more so manipulative because I am directly changing the pH of the water to make it more acidic. Of which is representative of year 2100 expected conditions. Okay. Um, so in that way, it's manipulative. At the community level, which is where you have these amalgama- or group of organisms who are interacting with one another, that's still manipulative because I can change the pH of a small tide pool community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But it is also coupled with some observational experiments of what actually are these things doing out in the tide pools sure. or the rocky intertidal of... Um, I work in Bodega Bay, Northern California. Um, And then scaling that up to the next level is an ecosystem. And so that, you can't really manipulate an ecosystem. So you can only make, um, you can only understand what's going to happen at that scale Mm -hmm. by predicting what the emergent effects are and what the scale relevant procedures will be, or not procedures, but... um, Couple coupling sure.
0: <laughs> factors. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <will be. laughs> that sounds sciencey. Um, what it will be at that level, okay. and so hopefully by understanding the multiple scales, I'll get uh, at least the smaller and medium scale. I'll be able to understand the ecosystem level, and apply it not to just say the rocky intertidal of Northern California, but to other um, oceanic ecosystems. Nice,
0: that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so. Now, moving a bit away from the research, and and I'm sure we'll come back to it a bit more later, um, can you tell us a little bit how you got into uh, ecology, marine ecology, and, and, you know, even, you know, how undergrad maybe led you towards deciding you wanted to do graduate school or your experiences in general? I'd love to hear about those different things.
2: Yeah, so uh, accidentally is the (laughs) entirety of this operation. Um, I always really liked school, so I pretty much thought that I was going to continue on to a master's program which is kind of what I, a terminal master's, which mm-hmm. is where I thought would be suitable for me. Um, but I had no idea what it was going to be in. Sure. So <laughs> I went to a community college right out of high school. I knew it was going to be something biology. I, for the majority of my life, I thought I was going to be a vet. And then I worked at a kennel and I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of people in this and I don't want to deal with people. So I started focusing more toward wildlife science in, because I watched a lot of like documentaries about mm-hmm. animals. Um, which is largely charismatic megafauna or large mammals. So I thought it might have something to do with that. And then, um, once I transferred to Rowan university, I started to get more and more interested in kind of that wildlife aspect sure. of science. Um, and then I did an internship with one of my ecology professors, um, Mike Grove and Courtney Richmond, and it was in marine science, which I formerly hated the ocean cause it was big and scary. <laughs> um, but in fact, that big and scariness turned out to be the best part about the ocean. It's Mm -hmm. because we know so little about it. Right. Um, and so I did an internship, uh, or not an internship, kind of, yeah, I did an internship with them in my, um, junior junior year. Yes. Junior. Thank you, Jordan. So this Um, is while
0: you were at Rowan? This
2: is while I was at Rowan. Yeah. And it was looking at seasonal distribution patterns of this small little comb jelly down in Maryland at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. And that so pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, it was um it was essentially jellyfishing and SpongeBob just like running <laughs> around trying to catch jellies and keep them alive because these things don't want to stay alive, right? They bash themselves against the tank and they die. Really? Yeah, they just kind wow. of fall into a puddle of nothing. Jeez. Um but that was actually a really great experience because science does not go as planned. Right. A lot of times. And so um it set me up for a lot of resiliency in science where <laughs> you plan a lot more than you ever think you should. And then you end up still running into trouble. But as long as you have workaround ways, then that's fine. You're not going to have all the workaround ways and right. it's still going to be fine. Yeah. Um, and so that experience kind of led me to really liking the water and the oceans. Um, and Then I graduated and got a job down in a lab at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in their marine ecology, Um, and we were doing ocean acidification and hypoxia, which is low oxygen uh, research with uh, forage fish, which are important in the food web, um, and also with um, oysters, which are a commercially important resource, and understanding how they will change in terms of distribution, and in terms of disease uh, resistance. And figured that was pretty cool. Um,
0: How how long were you there?
2: I was there for a year and a half. Okay. And I still feel like I don't... Like, obviously, I love the ocean, but I feel like I could kind of be doing anything ecologically Mm. related because I really like... It's not necessarily the system. It's that... Figuring out the connections between these different pieces in a system, um, but ultimately, I wanted to be outside, and I really liked how complicated ecology is because you're trying to understand how these organisms affect their environment and vice versa, and so you get all these feedback mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just this like cool little niche subject because it affects humans mm-hmm. and human wellness. So, um, and not just that like obviously, this is cool stuff to study anyway. Yeah but um so i kind of fell into the water um and oceans and the ocean acidification bit was the was the biggest interest to me because it's kind of this middling ground between applied science and theoretical science right right um
0: and it's very relevant it's very relevant. Very relevant it's a
2: very hot topic yeah um but it's something that's coming on extremely quickly <laughs> so yeah. throwing a bunch of scientists to solve this problem from different aspects is great mm-hmm. um but yeah it was kind of i guess accidental i still love the ocean i'm still very fond of it now um <laughs> which is why i then decided to produce or pursue uh graduate school right. initially i thought about masters mm-hmm. and then why did i pick a phd
0: <laughs> <laughs> glutton for punishment you know
2: I feel like, like, yeah, I really like school, so I'm not really opposed to like longer durations in school, mm-hmm. but I felt I... Wa- oh, yeah, okay. I wanted more control of my research. Gotcha. At first, I was really afraid that I would just get stuck inside writing all day, and that sounded terrifying to me, especially when I was a technician at um, the Smithsonian. Right. And I was kind of playing outside all day. Right. And to me, that was really fun, especially yeah. coming from just undergrad. Uh, but... <laughs> And I actually talked to the PI in that lab, Denise Breitberg, about this exact problem of what are the merits of the master's over a PhD or even pursuing a master's to start with. I was
0: going to ask you, actually. I was was curious, especially in your field, because it varies a lot. Yeah,
2: it's... uh, I mean, like, getting a master's in one field is not at all comparable in another. I mean, like, it may be academically comparable, but it doesn't set you up at the same place in life. No, I definitely... Yeah. (laughs) If I got a master's, I would essentially be like more guaranteed tech positions. Um, I could be head tech.
0: Oh, interesting. But
2: that's kind of where it ends. It gets me more responsibility, which is great because I love responsibility. Mm -hmm. But it kind of stops where I, the progression of my career. Gotcha. And that sounded really enticing to me a couple years ago because I wanted to not just be the lowly tech who was the person who was just running around doing the experiments i wanted to at least have a little bit more input which is where like a head tech or a soul tech
0: sure would a soul tech
2: yeah not like the fish <laughs> but like you're the only tech oh i thought you meant it's not <laughs> I like... Thought, like
0: in your soul <laughs> no, i no. was like that's a weird name but then... <laughs> i
2: feel it um no like if you're the only person teching. Uh, for okay. that PI or, or that lab. Then and by a, teching,
0: you mean doing research?
2: Yeah, being okay. a technician sure. In, sure. in the lab. Gotcha. Um, but, and it sounded good to me mm-hmm. because I was afraid of sitting inside writing papers all day. And then, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I started to do the applications or at least think seriously and looking into it. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to sink at least three years or two years, more so three years yeah. because... um especially in ecology and outdoor research, you have seasons. Yeah. I mean, oh, right. maybe not yeah. in California, but like <laughs> in a lot of America you have seasons. So you yeah. have a field season where you can only work for a certain amount, usually mm-hmm. in the summer, if that's what you're, I mean, we had a field season in Maryland in the summer. Sure. Um, and so it generally takes a little bit longer than say, a re- like your research masters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. You, you can diddle on a computer yes, all day long. pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> but I'm kind of more subject to the, and, and my field is subject to the whims of nature. Yeah. Um, so if I was going to put three years into it, why not double that time and get a PhD? Sure. And I found that I really loved the process of thinking. And like grant writing, which previously to me was the scariest part, <laughs> is now such a creative outlet. And it's, it is really fun. Like it's... And, and this is coming exactly from, um, or entirely from Denise Breitberg when I talked to her, but she's like, that's the best part because then you get to dream up all the things that you would love to do in research. And obviously grant writing has to be based in some sort of truth or you have to have some capability to complete it. But it is just this time where you can think like, if I had all the money in the world, what science would I want to do? Mm-hmm. And it's really, uh, invigorating and exciting to think of what you would want to do, um, you pare that down when you actually do, like when you get yeah. the grant and you run it. Yeah. But um, it's it's a very creative, nice outlet for science.
0: That's good. That's good. I'm glad you like that. I've definitely heard varying opinions on mm-hmm. grant writing, so it's nice to hear a more positive one than some of the other, you know, ones. I've yeah. Heard.
2: I mean, like, so it. Okay. So it definitely is incredibly scary and it, sure. it the grant writing process depends on your stability if you have a grant that's running out you're obviously more stable and you've had success right but if you're continuously writing grants and you're not getting success and yet yeah, that's really right kind of demeaning in a way where yeah you're like oh yeah. okay no one thinks anything of what I'm doing but I've been fortunate enough to like be successful in my grant writing Right. so as I continue to grant write I like it
0: yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so so it, I'm also interested because you said you're getting a PhD, you sort of, you know, master's versus that, two years versus four years, from the sounds of what you're saying anyway. Do um, you get, not get your master's along the way then?
2: Yeah, I don't. So um, my program, Ecology at UC Davis, does have a master's mm-hmm. program. Um, okay. They don't really separate them out. Master's and PhDs take roughly the same courses. PhDs okay. take a couple more courses. Sure. Um, but I don't get a master's along the way. Right. So the process for me is you enter. I entered as a PhD student, which I know right. is different from your department. Yeah, it varies a lot. Uh, <laughs> and essentially I had to find a professor who would be willing to take me on as a student first. Sure. So you do like the okay. professor dating type thing before you actually <laughs> yes. enter. Yeah. Um, and then I take my qualification exam mm-hmm. in oh my second or third year okay and that advances me to candidacy and that's just like a—I have to have a proposal submitted for my research Mm -hmm. as well that's like 10 pages um that's not too bad no it's not bad at all and then also i have five members of my committee uh each part of a different topic that i've chosen to specialize in okay and then they all i give like a 20, 30 minute presentation and then they all ask me questions. Okay. That makes sense. But it's pretty, um, I mean, it's rigorous. Like you study for like two, Mm -hmm. three months, but it's not anywhere near as daunting as Mm -hmm. some other qualification (laughs) exams uh, that I've heard about from somewhere.
0: Um,
2: and then that's kind of it. Then what happens is I finish, I'm going to finish in six years and then I give an exit seminar and I'm done. Very
0: cool. Yeah. Very cool.
2: So it's low key.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I've heard a lot more, and, and I have other friends who are in graduate school now too, where it seems like it's becoming more common. And maybe, maybe it was common this whole time and I just didn't know, but it seems like it's becoming more common for, you know, individuals who want the PhD to just not even bother with the master's. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, and I kind of get it to a large degree because it's, it's, you know, once you get the PhD, nobody really cares if you have the master's. Yeah. Um, whether that, is good or bad, I don't know, but it, it seems to be becoming more and more common throughout the, um, graduate spectrum. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think you're going to have to take courses anyway, as long as the courses are adjusted appropriately and scaled, you know, as opposed to maybe, you know, just taking tons of courses for the masters and then taking more for the PhD, you can get it done a lot faster. But, um, I just thought that was interesting and I was curious to hear if if that was Yeah, it
2: definitely depends. So, Getting a masters is a really great idea if you have a weak research background or you're really unsure about what you want to do. Like mm-hmm. don't sink up don't go into a PhD program not wanting yeah. to potentially commit <laughs> to it, right? Yeah. Um I mean people do that all the time where they do the quote unquote fail out and yeah. where they don't advance to candidacy and just graduate or they do and then they're like, "You know what? I don't want to do this anymore mm-hmm. after 3 years and just leave with a master's." Yeah. It's kind of frowned upon. <laughs> uh, a little bit of dishonesty on some people's part, but, um, or or not necessarily. Sometimes you just change and your situation yep. life changes. Um, so masters are a great idea if you're unsure about what you want to do right. or to prepare you to enter a PhD program.
0: Yes, that also seems
1: true.
2: <laughs> um, it does put you in different footing then because if you have... A cohort of people come in and some have masters, there's a weird sort of dynamic that can occur where some don't want to take more class. I mean, like if you've had masters, you're like, I'm kind of done taking classes. Yeah. But then you might need to take more classes. Yeah. So there's a little bit of weirdness um, mm-hmm. that you may, someone would have to potentially adjust for. Right. Um, but also if you think about it, a masters could take you two to three years mm-hmm. and then you enter a PhD program, which could take you... Four to six years. Yep. And having a master's doesn't always guarantee that your PhD will go faster. So yep. you could potentially be lengthening your PhD by three years unnecessarily if you are leaning more so on the PhD side.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, but if you just want to do go more into management mm-hmm. or natural resource management, then that's a great option for you. Yeah. Um, so... Th- I think it's definitely something that people need to think about before they apply to a program. Um, And if you're unsure, apply to a program which has both master's and PhD. And then that way, there's a couple people in my cohort, and it definitely happens year after year where people just transition. They're like, you know what? I think I like this. Their advisor's is on board, and they just seamlessly in the first or second year transition into a PhD program.
0: Makes sense.
2: Um, So that's probably the best option. If you go to a master's-only school or where they only offer a master's in that program, you're definitely limiting yourself to what the options are. So it's, but then you also have to think of like, what is the prestige of the school, which apparently matters and not just the school, but the person itself. So it's um, a strange recipe that someone has to think about, because then there's other life factors, like, uh, do they have the support I need as a student? Yeah. Is this a school that has representation in, um, for my needs? Right. Um,
0: is funding available? It's funding available? Yeah. You know, <laughs> Stuff I mean, like that.
2: there's like, there's this well, this esteemed program um, in Moss Landing Labs and what is it? It's Moss Landing Marine Labs. It's kind of- Where's Moss Landing? It's like between Santa Cruz and Monterey.
0: Oh, okay. And they so, do some
2: like central. really neat stuff out there, but it takes like four or five years to get a master's there.
0: Ooh,
2: and it's just yeah, that's a long
0: time to get a master's. It's a master. long time. Full time.
2: It's. I don't know if it's full time. I know. Gotcha. I mean, the problem is they're remote, so TA opportunities are scant or teaching assistant opportunities, right, right. which is usually how a lot of uh, grad students support yeah, themselves. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then. I don't know if the funding's there, and right. it's just at that point you're doing nearly a PhD and only getting a master's for it. Yeah, it it, it doesn't seem fair. They should award doctorates, That's, but wow.
0: That's it's also crazy. a problem
2: because I think there are California State University which can't give doctorates out. Wait, is that true? Yeah. So, um, or at least some of them in some fields. Like CSUs can definitely, I think, give some doctorates out. Okay. Maybe law or education, but um, like CN, like. There's a joint doc program with San Diego State University, which is a CSU. All right. And the students come up to Davis for a year, and that way they're awarded a joint doc. So they have a doctorate oh. from San Diego State University and UC Davis. Interesting. Because um, they can't get just a doctorate at a CSU, a California State huh. University. That's so So there's weird. even this hierarchy among state
0: universities. That's so strange.
2: And I think Moss Landing is the same way
0: because huh. it's a CSU. Wow, that's so weird. That's a long time to do a master's. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure when you come out of it, a lot of people in the industry will at least know how rigorous it was, but that's hopefully, right? I mean, yeah,
2: hopefully. Like, people definitely do. I think they do good work, the students there, and I think it's a great location in terms of work that some people want to do with, like, seagrass or kelp. Yeah. But what are you getting out of it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean? That's that's pretty crazy. Um, so we can take another pivot here. Have you? This is kind of random. I <laughs> um, I have something written down going kind of different from it, but you, you also, much like us, uh, grew up in New Jersey, right? Or, or yeah, in the East Coast.
2: Yeah, I'm from Berlin, New Jersey, which okay. is right outside. Well, it's right by Voorhees, um, gotcha. which is in Camden County,
0: right? Uh, have you? Had any sort of transition as you <laughs> came to the West Coast?
2: So it's kind of weird because for the last, like, six years, I haven't lived in one place for more than a year. Oh, Because okay. I was living gotcha. in Maryland for a year and a half. So that was a slightly right. different transition, but not, like, <clears throat> different than East Coast, right? There's right. still, like, there's winter and aggression.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> but.
1: Also Wawa. Wawa. I uh, yeah. do miss Wawa. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> Just got very Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs>
2: pretzels. Yeah. I pretzels. Mean, we had to learn how to make them. Um, and then I moved with Jordan for six months to Texas. So it, that was different. But then when I came to the West Coast, are things, did I have to acclimate? Uh, the weather is better. So that was a plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, California is just a better state for those who like to be outdoors.
0: That seems true. <laughs> um, yeah no, yeah i I agree with that, and that's sort of one of the things why why uh also like when I was getting close to graduation, I'd have people asking me like, so you come back home or like I'm like nope so yeah, and I imagine that helps a lot with with what you work into, although in fairness there's also a lot of Marine stuff off the East Coast. A lot so. of, a lot of water te- on the East yeah. Coast yeah. Too. <laughs> there, Yep,
2: water exists there too. Yeah, that's it's weird. It's also down in the South.
0: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. weird. That does it. Not weird. Te- how is Texas though in terms of that?
2: Um, there are rivers, which was interesting because oh. there's a ton huh. of fossils out there. Okay. Um,
0: I hadn't. It hadn't even occurred to me that that would be. That makes sense though.
2: Yeah, there's there's rivers. It it's it's different. Right. Um.
0: Well, you guys were Fort Worth, right? Yeah, yeah. we were in Fort okay. Worth. So I, that's pretty landlocked, right? Yeah. Very, very <laughs> north, north Texas prairie. I like don't so eight know. Eight hours geography. away. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right. <laughs> From the Gulf yeah, of that's, Mexico. It's a bit far.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was only a temporary stopover. That was right. never meant to be a permanent thing. Yeah. Um, I guess it could have been a permanent thing. I mean, like, yeah, I'm pretty flexible with like what I study gotcha. with ecology. Uh, no land. So I wouldn't have wanted that. Though. So I guess it would have been rivers.
0: No, no, like Nebraska, not not high on the list for. No, nope, Not I <laughs> don't high have on a big. I imagine they don't have too big of a marine biology uh,
1: <laughs> department or anything over in Nebraska. Probably uh, not. Yeah, I mean, if anybody from the University of Nebraska is is listening and. <laughs> Would like to write us some angry emails about the quality of your, your marine ecology department. Please yeah. don't. Just please don't. But yeah,
2: the East Coast definitely has a very well respected marine program up and down the eastern seaboard. Right. Uh, not program programs, I should say. Sure, yeah. A um, bunch. But
0: is, is is there a <coughs> predominant location that, that um people in your field end up in geographically, like in terms of the US? Just coasts. Just coasts, Really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, essence.
2: we're Typical
0: Everywhere coastal liberals. <laughs> <laughs> uh
2: no, I mean, like you definitely have some people who are inland
0: mm-hmm. and then
2: have their field season during the summer.
0: Oh, okay. So that's that also sense. an option yeah, sure. if you want
2: to be a marine per a landlocked marine person. Sure. Um or you pivot toward freshwater. Right. Um, but yeah, people tend to stick on the coasts.
0: Great is the Great Lakes work too?
2: Uh it's freshwater. Right. So but it's water. So, little different um like yeah you would be there's different properties of the water Mm -hmm. and you're not gonna get i mean you'll get tides but it's 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 very different processes that govern the actual interaction between the organisms and the environment because the environment's so different so the organisms are also very different um there's i mean like like I worked in an estuary in Maryland, mm-hmm. which is fresh and which is brackish water. So it's okay. fresh so and it's sort of saline. So yeah, it's a mix. Okay. So that's like an intermediate place that you could work and it's still interesting. Yeah, um, but cool. the second you get salt in the water, things tend to change. You need to have <laughs> organisms who have the capability of uh, regulating the salts. And so so osmoregulation. regulation, so you get changes physiologically, which then change, uh, manifest in behavioral changes. And so you have to keep these considerations. Gotcha.
0: Do you, as a, as a, I I, do like, should I call you a meme ecologist? Yeah. So
2: I'm not a marine biologist Right. because I'm not. So, and this is a very subtle distinction that (laughs) in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter at all, (laughs) but a biologist is more so just interested, not just, but they tend to focus on the organism itself. So if there's someone doing shark research on like, the functioning of, say, the shark's heart or their Mm -hmm. ability to... Or like penguins... Or not penguins. um, Whale's ability to dive. That's a marine biologist because they're more so focused on the biology of the organism, which is the workings of the organism. Yes, they consider the environment, but I'm pretty split between considering the environment and the organism itself. I'm not tied to one organism or one taxa, group of organisms necessarily. It's just the interaction that I'm interested in. So it's separating it from... The organism itself to the interactions and um th- that type of consideration which gotcha. makes me an ecologist gotcha
0: well then i guess this this i was just gonna ask do ecologists have have favorites favorites either groups of animals or
2: i mean definitely like <laughs> but like it tends it might be what you're researching that's yeah, sure. because that you've just
0: i mean sea slugs are cute uh right?
2: Yeah, they're fine.
0: <laughs>
2: I'm not particularly interested in the slug itself, but right. what it can, the information that it can use. Gotcha. Um, I... God,
1: that's cold. <laughs> the, the slugs were just, you know, they thought you were, were so interested and just, God, spending so much time with them, but now you're just... Taking you're, a you're lot just, of care with that pH balance. You just want that balance. sweet, sweet scientific uh, data.
2: I mean, to be fair, like... You do get it. You like the organisms you work with, but have to maintain mm-hmm. distance. Because, right. like, I've killed over a thousand fish. Sure. Like, these are uh, things... Me too. <laughs> but,
0: like, they tasted good. No, so. no, no, no. Not... <laughs>
2: Very different thoughts there. Um... Yeah, you guys don't kill anything. Like, and that's something... true. (sighs) Well... Well, okay, you shouldn't kill anything. Let's
0: let's skip over that for now. Let's not not go too deep into that. The Uh, aerospace engineers talking about that.
2: I mean, one of... So, like, I had an interview for a lab in Louisiana that I was going to do an internship Mm -hmm. at. And one of the questions was, how would you feel... uh, Chainsawing a shark's head off. <laughs> Whoa! That's my favorite just day interview one. question. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to consider that you are dealing with specimens. How did you answer? Not in a way I'm proud of. <laughs> uh, I would chainsaw off a shark's head. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's I like think we just found the episode it. title. For <laughs>
0: Yeah, you're right. That's a good. good point. <laughs> oh, that's that's that makes sense though. That like we don't directly work with I was gonna say living beings, but that's not entirely true. But <laughs> we don't do experiments on other living things. Yeah. We, we just you know, have, we work with other people. That doesn't count. But yeah, we
2: have we have ethics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You did mm. just talk about chainsawing a shark's head off,
1: so well, okay. yeah. but it. But is... they do it humanely. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, it's very humane. We had to go through a procedure. We had to get
0: approval. Yeah. They, that... they
1: got approval to chainsaw <laughs> shark head off. Triplicate and, yeah.
2: <laughs> it's just me signing it every time. <laughs> I gave myself permission. <laughs>
0: uh, yes, yes, hell yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, that's good though. That's, that makes, that's, uh, that, that makes sense though. Like as a, you have to be willing to, to do that and that's part of the job. So like it makes sense that it felt a little extreme perhaps in the way you're phrasing, <laughs> but.
2: Oh, well, I've definitely, and I've thought about this a lot. Um, so like in order, when I was working with fish, they're vertebrates. So you have to be trained how to handle them and mm-hmm. kill them. And it, I mean like you don't have to kill them, but you have to be trained in the way that you will do research on these organisms. So it is very much, I mean, this is very different than I'm sure 50 years ago, mm-hmm. but, um, you have to learn the different chemicals that can kill fish and how the preparations, how to do them. Or alternatively, you have to learn like, are you on a boat? Okay. Pride just smack its head on the side. That is an acceptable manner to kill a fish. <laughs> That's um, interesting.
0: Yeah. that I guess that makes sense. Yeah.
2: But oh. there's a the second you get into a thing with a vertebrate or a vertebrae, mm-hmm. probably multiple vertebrae because there's not I don't think something that just has one a spine. Let's go with a spine. <laughs> yeah, let's say
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> um, you treat it very differently than invertebrates. Hmm. So I primarily will deal with invertebrates, and it's just a lot easier to research them. Sure. Um, I mean they're also more not more interesting, but the number of invertebrates far. Far, far outweighs the number of vertebrates. We tend to study vertebrates. Um, And so, yeah, you have to think about these types of things all along the way.
0: It's very cool. Very cool. Um, Before we move on to the second half of the podcast, um, I just wanted to ask one, one last sort of question to you, which was, you know, outside of all the science stuff and outside of your career, you know what what other stuff sort of do you like doing and have you enjoyed either? You know, I don't I don't know. Just just try to get to know you more as a person and, and here in the podcast, here here in the farmhouse. Sure. Uh, is there? And if there, you know, if that if that's uh, if that's a weird question, then we don't have to. No, yeah. no, 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 no,
2: that's fine. Um. So, well, first and foremost. Well, I guess this is a weird follow-up. I love animals. <laughs> um, really? So yeah, like I'm I'm, I'm, I'm
0: petting, I'm petting their dog right now.
2: Yes. So my dog Weston, <laughs> he's extremely important to me. He's going to turn thirteen soon, and he's going to live forever. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I guess I'm really interested in, um, like, yeah. So I wanted to be a vet, so I'm very right. interested in animals. I take a lot of time to just do things with my dog sure. in terms of walking. Um, outdoor stuff. I, I feel like it'd be bad if I didn't say it as an ecologist. <laughs> sure. Um, visiting different outdoor
0: locations. Do you, do you guys go on hikes and, and she's just pointing out different, different like
1: in environments and you're just like, ah it's, there's a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I definitely have more of an appreciation of outdoor spaces sure. uh, since we got married than I did in the first 20 years of my life. Yeah, because you um, didn't go
0: outside. <laughs>
1: like I said, I've got more of an appreciation. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, definitely like, un- understanding that the natural world isn't just this thing that exists, has always existed, and will mm-hmm. always exi- exist, and is not just a backdrop to civilization and just kind of filling in the spaces in between where we've built stuff. That's something that I've definitely um, found adds a lot of appreciation and, um, value just to my day to day life. Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's a, a surprising amount of overlap in terms of what Jordan and I do. Um, not what we do, but the way that we think it's all Mm -hmm. thinking about systems, right. And how they, how they work together. So, In doing some of my research, I thought, like, how can I enlist Jordan to help me? Oh, I'm going to videotape a slug for 12 hours and want to know where it moves? We can probably use an algorithm to understand the movement of that. That's
0: true,
2: yeah. Um, And recently, I mean, feedback loops dominate everything. And so Jordan and I have had a lot of conversations about that recently in terms of the workings of systems. Um, I don't think my work would really... Direct his work unless
1: we're sending <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah, unless unless I start working on underwater vehicles, yeah. as opposed to you know those that sail the ocean of the sky, yeah, then, uh, <laughs> different I've, fluids. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not gonna spend too much time uh, investigating the potential effects of aircraft on invertebrate sea slugs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> apologies I don't see why, to, why not. Yeah,
1: apologies to the sea slugs, but you're just not in my my optimization function.
2: <laughs> um yeah, I guess other things. Uh you know what's great? Scientists are creative as hell. Like every scientist I know has a little thing that they do. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. oh, you draw. You do like mm-hmm. something with yarn. Um <laughs> I'm really expanding. Um no, but it's I I find that there tends to be like, oh, there's this left brain, right brain, which yeah. first off is false, um, but also science. Like I'm coming back to this again from the grant writing. Science is incredibly creative, yeah. And people tend, the scientists that I've known tend to have that outlet in their life, whether it be pottery, dancing. Like I've known yeah. quite a few scientist dancers.
0: Do you like doing pottery while dancing, or? Uh,
2: no, not okay. well. Something you know. I've explored. Everyone's
1: different, you know. Uh,
2: no, I'm kind of just a.
1: Bringing, bringing a whole new meaning to spin class. <laughs> 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 that was a good one.
2: Um, just generally jack of all trades. Yeah, trying cool. to be all artistic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good that you get into nature too. I think that's something that I also probably don't appreciate as much as I should. <laughs> but it's good that it's good that you're able to go out and sort of appreciate it from a different angle, and that's
2: yeah. On well, time. it's I don't look at nature in like just reverence of its being
1: mm-hmm.
2: um i mean obviously like it's amazing that nature exists right yeah. if i see like a mountain it's it's beautiful it's incredible mm-hmm. but i immediately go into why is that there <laughs> what is like what is stopping this from growing there why is there a patch yeah. is there patchiness in this environment what does that have to do with population dispersal uh-huh. like all these sorts of things that um like you guys don't just look at a plane maybe i don't know probably not you start to think about the way that it's flying and the way that it's designed um so but it doesn't take away from the whole that it's freaking awesome right yeah so yeah (laughs) it's just a new spin
0: yeah very cool um well we're gonna take a quick break i think and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll discuss some current events It's your editor and recording friend Alex Hobbs here with the middle part of the podcast. gonna keep it real quick for you guys today. Um, thank you so much for listening uh, and tuning in again and and thank you to Ashley for being on the show. Uh, it was great having someone who wasn't you know an engineer from a completely different background on the show and, and uh, it was, I think it turned out really well and the audio quality turned out great and it was it was just a really, really good recording uh Sorry, we haven't been around recently. Uh, you may have noticed, and we kind of addressed this at the beginning of the show. But uh, we recently graduated with with our masters, and we had some guest cancellations. We we're hoping to have an episode in the middle there, but then we had some guest cancellations, and I wasn't sure when the next episode would be out because I've been busy running all over the place and traveling. So uh, we're back, and and we're gonna try to keep to a regular schedule. But good, good to be back. Um, I want to I want to thank um, Andy G. Cohen uh, for his music on the Free Music Archive that we use in this show. Uh, the two songs we use are "Just a Blip" on the album "Through the Lens," which is the intro and outro to this podcast, and also the song "Scramby Eggs" off the album "Layers." Uh, there should be links to that both in the podcast description and on our website uh, if you are interested in hearing more from him. Uh, if you have not already, uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Farmcast. Um, and if you enjoyed today's program, uh, you know, tell a friend, family member, anyone who you think might be interested. We don't really publicize too much, so any anyone you tell or recommend this to is great, and, and we really do appreciate it. Um, we're going to try to get back to a bi-weekly schedule on Thursdays like we had before, Uh but that probably means it could be a little over two weeks before the next episode comes out. Uh, I'll try and post information on the Facebook and Twitter as it develops because it's kind of a work in progress. I'm I'm trying to figure out moving and and uh, it's hard to get guests uh, in the summer just because of, of how we're uh, kind of graduate school based and, and some people aren't necessarily around then. Um, but at any rate, thank you again for tuning in and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I'll let you go back to the program. Thanks. Bye.
1: All right, welcome back to the second half of the Farmhouse Podcast, and uh, we've been spending, you know, some time in the first half talking about the difference between evaluating an organism or an element or something in and of itself compared to how it interacts with the rest of a system. And to that end, I kind of want to talk about something that is a common element or a common concern between both of our fields, which we have, you know, very different viewpoints and very different concerns <laughs> regarding, and that's plastics. Um, We are in aerospace kind of on the precipice of fiber reinforced plastics becoming essentially the default material for building airplanes. Um, and because they're they're so much lighter and stronger and and you can mold them and and do better, you know, aerodynamic surfaces with them. And it's it's, you know, this huge weight savings and, and so it is it is nothing but good news for us, the the plastics and composites revolution that's going on right now, but for those interested in what role plastic plays in the environment and in the ocean in particular, the picture is not quite so rosy. So Ashley, if you want to give us a little bit of, you know, what, what the word plastic means in, in marine ecology.
2: Yeah, plastic is not a separated world uh, word in, in the marine ecology world. It is... It's a contaminant essentially. It's a toxin that, and that's the way we tend to view it. Uh, particularly, its accumulation potential, not just in water, but in the sediment of the water, and then higher up in organisms where it can have the potential to bioaccumulate, and which means that as you go up each level, um, as <coughs> each fish, each more fish, on from as a higher level organism like a tuna eats many smaller level organisms on a trophic level then you get this accumulation and concentration of plastics, much like you would toxins. And plastics themselves can, are not that great at degradating, um, so they tend to stick around for a while, but they do leach chemicals um, and plasticizers themselves, which have potentially harmful reproductive and biological consequences for these organisms. So um, plastics research, particularly in the marine sphere, is a... Well, we've known about it for a while. We tend to have thought about them as macroplastics, which are plastics larger than five millimeters that you can see. But the new, um, like, you know, there's pictures of a a turtle with its head um, stuck in one of those soda rings. Or um, we've all seen that, well, not all of us, but many people are aware that large plastics are in the stomachs of birds and sometimes larger fish and whales Um, But a new area of interest particularly is that of microplastics, where things as small as a single fiber, um, less than five millimeters, and on the nanoscale, have the potential to accumulate in the environment. And it's largely an unseen problem. Um, So there's a lot more focus on that, because every time you wash your clothing, and if it's acrylic, well... You're releasing some of these fibers, which are then discharged into the wastewater. The wastewater is treated and then discharged into either a river or an ocean. And so there's this accumulation of small plastics, um, which can stay in organisms and even... um, And again, the, the release of the chemicals associated with them. So it's... I mean, I mean, like, it's also hard because a lot of the research that we do would not be capable without plastics themselves, be it containers, um, and other instruments that we use, but the, the biggest problem is single use plastics, which people, and, and kind of a society which doesn't value properly disposing of its trash, um, and and waste, which then ends up in the environment, and is extremely costly and hard to take away from that environment.
1: Yeah, so I guess the m- macro or or societal level lesson, um, particularly when talking about the the ocean and its interaction with with waterways and how this stuff tends to feed back into you know human ecosystems and, and affect our health is that it is one big system you can't there's nowhere on earth that you can just dump a ton of things and just forget about it and just say okay well that's going to be you know a toxic wasteland forever but it's sealed off and, and it's not going to affect the rest of us um, in before in between the the have you know we were talking a little bit about this expedition that's going out to, uh, examine what, what's becoming called the North Pacific gyre or the North Pacific garbage patch, mm-hmm. which is an area of recirculating water in the North Pacific that um, creates and, and does concentrate this stuff um, and is now something like three times the size of France, you know, an area that is, that is pretty densely packed with, with plastic and other contaminants in the water. But we're starting to see that, you know, even in this area of uh, you know, mass recirculation, that there is some feedback that these things are coming back to human ecosystems and, and affecting the health of people. So have you guys spent much time and in, in looking at, you know, how does how do these ecosystems interact and what are the potential health effects of contaminants like that?
2: Yeah, there's definitely consideration for that. And that's an interesting point, because all of the world's oceans are connected through circulation. But it, we should be clear in that plastics are not, and, and the oceans are massive, right? So you may think, eh, some plastics here and there. But that's not how they tend to arrange themselves. It's not a homogeneous distribution among the world's oceans, which would minimize the effect of the plastics, potentially. But they are concentrated um through through gyres or ocean oceanic circulation it, it does tend to bring all these together which may seem great if you want to remove it but removal is an entirely different difficult process as it's in the middle of the pacific ocean um but also so you tend to get this accumulation in gyres which are circulating bodies of water or on the coast which is where humans tend to be um and so in terms of what the effects are, we're already seeing that animals that eat these plastics are not capable of eating other foods because they tend to remain lodged in there. And as a result, they're not capable of consuming the calories that they need to grow and exist and reproduce. So you're, you're kind of hitting the organism at every part if you affect the feeding. Um, some of these plastics... Are interesting to animals to eat and they can mistake them. Um, Fish have been shown and even um, small plankton have been shown to be able to mistake these plastics for food and ingest them and so then you get this accumulation and again the same thing they're not having enough energy to exist and survive. Um, In terms of human impacts there is the Concern for this bioaccumulation, which I discussed earlier, where um, a small organism may intake a a little bit of plastics, but as larger organisms eat a bunch of those small organisms, then it's concentrating a lot of those plastics. And we tend to like to eat things higher up on the food chain, like tuna and large fish. Um, And there has been evidence that this is a potential. So um, my... um, I just wrapped up a, a project... And, well, I didn't wrap it up. We still have to continue um, looking at plastics in Bodega Bay. And we did see uh, Bodega Bay, which is in Northern California. is a, It also has a marine lab there. And it's a protected area. And so we love to think of these protected areas of, hey, they're just, you know, it's great. Designated areas protected. It's a marine reserve and kind of just keep up on the habitat. And things are great. It's a refuge. But that's not actually true because there's you can't get away from plastic contamination in these ecosystems um, because of the way that the water moves it about in these recirculation patterns. And so we were finding plastic contamination all in this reserve, be it uh, macro or microplastics. And we also found evidence for bioaccumulation where in the water and sediment, you'd have a very low level of these microplastics. But as you got to um, seaweed, and other types of plants, they didn't um, integrate it into themselves, but it was just on their surface if they were kind of sticky. So you, ha- you started to have more plastics that would be found on these um, plants. And then you have the grazers, which for us were these tegula snails, these black little turban snails, which would graze on the surface of these plants. Um, and eat some of the plants themselves and we digested these plants which or not these plants these snails which removed all of um, the inorganic or no I'm sorry all the, the organic material and we found that there was a lot more plastics concentrated in these organisms and if that's just a small grazer snail then what does that say for sea stars who eat these and then other organisms who feed on these and so there's very much the potential that you're accumulating these plastics, which is a concern, but also the plasticizers and the chemicals associated with them, which can have harmful consequences for human health.
1: When so, you,
0: sorry. Well, when you said you digested them, mm-hmm. did you use just a chemical process on them? Or? Yeah,
2: it's just a chemical process and it removes everything organic. Okay. And like, so it digests the organism itself. Um, some of the shell is left or I think the shell is left. Um, But then, so that way, whatever we're identifying under the microscope, we know that it's a plastic.
0: Gotcha.
2: Um, Because the plastics won't, they don't degrade in these extremely harsh chemicals, which will degrade a body.
1: Right. (laughs) Cool. I was just curious about that. Okay, so, like I said in the opening, for us, plastics are, are generally viewed as just this net positive. It's something we've got to understand, something we've got to come to grips with, but... For us, environmental concerns usually come as design constraints, kind of a binary, you can't emit this amount of CO2, you can't use this particular rocket fuel. Um, but those those constraints usually arrive at us after years or decades of deliberation and arbitration and estimating the, the cost and, and impact of either using these materials or making these design choices. And we don't see really any of that. We, we have... Often, re- really, no idea why or, or what what led to a particular uh, restriction being put in place. And I think essentially that a lot of that is just kind of shoved off onto environmentalists and ecologists like you. And and like you said, you're starting to understand how these things scale up and and what the um, overall ecosystem impact can be. And I and I gotta wonder, like, how tough is it to to translate? that just, just you know raw numbers about how much this is accumulating in sea stars and, and turbine snails and things like that into you know dollars and cents or something that, that's gonna really move a policymaker or somebody in Washington to say, okay, no, this is this is either a material we've got to regulate and keep track of or just ban altogether or you know make some alteration of how do, how do you go from scientific data to to real change in, in how we conduct business?
2: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because that involves so many people along the way. So you tend to have the scientists who are doing the research, and then you have advocates who may be just citizens, but can also be scientists or people who are interested in the process. And then one of, I, I guess the thing that you said, which is very telling of your view on the environment, is how do you translate it into dollars and cents? And that's a very contentious argument in ecology and um, environmental science that you even have to do that. That there's this that you have to translate what to some is this intrinsic value in nature into dollars and cents to actually have it be worth saving. Um, when to some people it's just an an obvious thing that you do r- regardless of the cost. So um, there is a field of science which is environmental. Um, economics. and they very much take that approach that you do you can ascribe some sort of value to the services that the ecosystem performs. and it's not an end-all be-all value, but it's at least helpful to inform of the costs. Um, this is this is done a lot where say there's a proposal to build something in a marsh mm. and um, maybe a housing development. Well someone may come along, when they're assessing this and say, well, this is the cost of the ecosystem services where you're purifying the water, you're preventing um, runoff, you're also, because the marsh is like a sponge for contaminants. And so you can then say, what would be this value if we didn't have a marsh? And that's the way that it's mainly done. Um, It's kind of an it does tend to be an ad hoc thing where you say, well, this is why we need to change this after it's already happened. Um, particularly like if you think about when we had leaded fuel and it it only kind of came after where we realized that it was a human health crisis, not just to say an environmental health crisis. Um, but the dollars and cents is definitely something that people does sway people. Um, but it does give an insight about the way the values that you have. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, yeah, environmental economists are those that would be the best ones to set that line if you're policy minded and dollars and cents minded. Um, other advocates are just people or scientists do tend to be those who are the movers and shakers where they'll get the attention, um, especially when we're in a state now that we should care about everything simultaneously so it's an entire process and a train to get to get things to happen in that way Mm
0: -hmm. i mean i was just thinking is there a better way but the economic side of it might be one of the easier ways to explain it to someone who's in you know government or something
2: but it it seems like it should be an easy way. But that's only if you view everything in dollars and cents. And people tend not to just be binary as in like, I care about the intrinsic value or I care about the money value. Sure. And so you have to approach this with a mix of kind of moralistic signaling of mm. why this matters. And ultimately it's hard because if it comes down to feeding people and saving the environment, I, I mean like it, it seems like depending on what your stance is, is let's feed people. But, and, and even then I'm creating this false dichotomy that you can only care about one or the other, right? right? Sure, sure. But we do have a caring, a caring capacity as, as people where you tend to be focused on one thing or caring about one thing for so long. I mean, no one remembers Coney 2012. Like, and so it's... (laughs) You, you have to get people not just in dollars and cents, mm-hmm. but emotionally as well.
1: Right, right. So, I mean, I guess if I can dip into the, the personal uh, reference here. You, you've you expressed, expressed frustration to me about the fact that people's emotional reactions often lead them to, you know, care very heavily and invest very heavily in things that are not necessarily the most important, critical, or... Um, impactful research or, or efforts that they've been doing. You know, things like charismatic megafauna we spent. Who knows how much money and, and effort trying to get pandas to uh, <laughs> make more pandas while <laughs> me, meanwhile, you know, thousands oh. if not millions of other species are, are dying out around us. Yeah, but they're not cute. That's, yeah, and I mean, yes. so, so
0: that was it like, for listeners at home, that was a joke. Uh, feel obligated to clarify.
1: So, so I mean, to you, I mean, I, I imagine you spend more time thinking about. I don't, I don't have to. Con- well, 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 well. I guess we can talk about the the aesthetics of airplanes, but generally, cuteness is not a design requirement for fighter jets. Um, generally, yeah, yeah. Usually. I mean, we'll talk about the F thirty five versus the X thirty two, and and that debacle at some point, but. I mean, generally speaking, the, the emotional impact for, for us is not something we have to consider. But, but you guys really have to be, I mean, almost from the start. And, and this is because now you're also facing kind of a hostile environment. You, you showed me um, a letter that Rand Paul recently wrote to the NSF, um, uh, basically, you know, demanding an inquest into the fact that you know, a lot of science that people are putting out is being funded by the NSF is aimed at driving policy and aimed at you know, gathering the information people need to make decisions about um, you know the the environmental and scientific issues, but some people feel that, that it's just improper from the get-go that that science should be motivated by trying to change people's minds.
2: Yeah, this is something that I definitely struggle with because as a personally, I don't like, emotional pleas. I find them to be slightly demeaning in that I can't, as if you don't expect me to understand like the, the thought behind it, or you, you don't want to give me all of the information. So you're just saying like, oh, I'm do this for the, for the polar bears instead of this will destroy an ecosystem, which provides this service. But I think it's hard because you don't want to deceive people and you don't want to con them and you don't want to manipulate them and but how do you communicate the effects of your research and how do you have people understand the consequences and i think probably the best way to go into this is understanding that people have different viewpoints and trying to be respectful of them while also informing them um there are some emotional pleas and arguments that can be made and on the whole I would rather stick with more kind of rational arguments but if you thought strictly in terms of rationality you may get to like let's just kill let's just ignore this this place because it's too costly like let's let's just write that one off and that gets rid of kind of I guess almost the the beauty and the magic of what a place can bring and the value added, which is not just dollars and cents. Um, so I don't like strictly emotional pleas, and I think that people should be respected in their ability to make decisions, but also informed. And sometimes you have to have multiple levels where you're considering different audiences, some which are more familiar with the science and some which are not. and and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You just have to try to strive for accuracy and respect.
1: I mean, I guess it, it reminds me of you know the, the I guess the early environmental ro- movement talking about, you know like Teddy Roosevelt and the foundation of like the National Park Service. and you know to to a degree, that was you know him and and that movement at the time, looking at the fact that you know oil production and and you know land use was expanding and saying that, you know this is this is kind of terraforming the continent a little bit, and there is some intrinsic value that maybe we can't uh, enumerate or or put onto paper here in having places like the Grand Canyon and Yosemite National Park and places like that um, not turned into you know, did like a. a and, oil ex- and, you know, we, we've had this debate continually, you know, things like the Anwar province, uh, not, excuse me, Anwar province is in Afghanistan, but the, Af- the Alaska National Wildlife Reserve, um, you know, opening to oil uh, exp- exploration. And so you, one thing you touched on is, is you know, you, there's a worry that rational analysis will, will lead us to just discard that and just say that, you know, that, that's not worth anything. Um, but I guess my, my question is, is one, how, how much, and, and, you know, you, you pointed out that I asked the question about how do you turn it into dollars and cents, but how much do you guys, I guess, spend time either thinking about, um, and, and this is a tremendous burden that, that we're kind of placing on you to, to convince us that, that we should be preserving things that, you know, probably are important to us. And then is there not also an argument that you almost just, just a conservative argument that we're not entirely in control here. And maybe we shouldn't just do everything that, that seems like a good idea at the time that maybe there is just this base level of, you know, let's keep things a little bit the way they were and just play in, in our little sandbox to just say that, you know, let's not make massive changes to the environment without, um, being, being absolutely sure that um, we understand what the effects are going to be.
2: Well, if you wait until you're absolutely sure of anything, it will have already passed. At which point, it will be useless to try to do anything. Um, and it's not that there's this lingering uncertainty where 95% of climate scientists, like or like maybe not all climate scientists agree that the Earth is changing and it's because humans. That's not true. Over 90%. Or ninety-five percent of climate scientists agree that the climate is changing and it's
1: due to. Humans. Well, I guess with that, I guess I'm like I'm asking the opposite question in that, you know, the the Earth and nature sort of is as it is, and, and human activity is you know now having massive changes.
2: Yeah, but the. the the problem is the length of time that these cycles occur. Mm-hmm. Sure, there are there's a fluctuation. The planet is moving; it's wobbling, and it it's moving and tilting away from the sun or toward the sun gives us seasons. So there's yearly changes, and there's um, hundreds of thousands of year changes that occur as well in terms of the climate of the Earth. But if you're looking at the data, which particularly the Keeling Curve at Mauna Loa, um, tells us that it is very well correlated and explained in causality where we are heating up the planet and causing massive climate shifts faster than at least the last 800,000 years with, um, I believe, ice cores. And we can go beyond that time even further with other methods which so that this is an abnormality which Mm -hmm. is only evidenced in the last couple hundred like million years and that's
1: like i guess that's what i'm saying is even if you can't you know tally up exactly how much damage you think that's going to do is there not like the possibility to get traction with the argument that like this is just way outside normal and that even if we're not sure what it's going to do that, that we are so far outside normal that we need to just get back to normal, um, because just the the level of uncertainty and risk that we're accepting by just watching these changes happen, even even if we can't tally it up, that, that just being so far outside our experience and, and the geological experience of Earth is something that that we can't chance as a species.
2: Yeah, I mean, n- not just as a species, but as a as a planet and a group of species. that can cont- like it's. Normal is not, it's a difficult term to use, but in terms of, like, baseline acceptable deviations outside of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and in the oceans, trying to reduce that as much as possible is what will get us to a more stable state. I feel like you asked something earlier, too.
1: Mm-hmm. It was kind of a ramply question <laughs> well okay, so I, I'm not sure how much time we, we have left, essentially, but um, one thing I, I wonder then is is just kind of as, as a hypothetical, say it's you know a thousand or ten thousand years in the future enough that that the climate was shifting naturally. would you be in favor of artificially attempting to influence the climate to bring it within? acceptable human norms or do you think that there's more weight on the idea that we should just let natural processes proceed as they are even if natural changes um, perhaps threaten our way of life?
2: That's not a useful question (laughs) (laughs) because you're asking me to dis like believe in this alternative universe where this is just a normal progression when all no of I'm, the not, I'm not talking about like
1: current climate change I'm, not, I'm just saying like as a philosophical hypothetical okay. do, do you think that the lessons of ecology are that we shouldn't you know try and have our hand on the tiller and, and guide the environment that we should let them you know go as they are even if we think we have an understanding of what the consequences of our actions are going to be
2: I mean it's so what you're con, what you're then considering is the rate of evolution. And and that rate can change depending on the external stresses from the environment. So you can potentially get faster evolution when there is an environmental stress. But we're talking about the limiting step, which tends to be the rate of reproduction of these organisms and the genetic material that they have themselves. And so it's then a question of you're making judgments on kind of which species to save Mm. and maybe the fast reproductive organisms with a a large uh, genetic cache are more likely to survive, but then you're picking these generalist organisms who can live kind of in a wide variety of places while ignoring the specialist organisms who are capable of living in somewhat extreme environments. And the consequences of that are that you it may take millions of years for life to then be able to exist in that place again which is a specialized environment or um, an extreme environment and we don't know what the consequences are of not having organisms there in terms of sequestering co2 in terms of the in in terms of moving or like in term I mean ecosystems interact and we don't know the consequences of changing one, what it has on the other, but from our evidence, what we've seen is that the planet itself has, is interacting mm-hmm. with, I mean, the systems on the planet are interacting with each other. So if you change one, say like the Arctic and the specialist organisms who live up there, you're also changing some of the systems that also, and organisms which interact with those systems.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so I guess just, so do you, do you think that humanity should be intervening in ecosystems to try and either regulate them or manipulate them to where we think we would like them to be?
2: Well okay, so well yes, I believe an interventionist type policy is appropriate um when but it takes an understanding of which organisms we believe are at risk, which at this point we don't have good data on. And that's like part of the project of my PhD is going across. Like we tend to have a lot of information on certain species and just not ignore, but other species are really difficult to keep in the lab and we have less information. So one, we don't know with a lot of certainty, which species are absolutely at risk. We have good indications of some species, especially based on um, their physiology and their, environmental requirements. And if the environment goes, the species may go. And so I I believe an interventionist policy there is appropriate. Um, But it takes a lot of science and knowledge. And these aren't things that you can just, you tend to have to go through a lot of uh, policy avenues to actually get these things to happen. So it's not, you're not just convincing yourself, you're convincing others, you're convincing people to spend money on it. And so you have to have already had a pretty strong scientific case to get to that point. But the way that you phrase the question makes it seem that there's uncertainty in this. And yes, there's uncertainty in a variety of decisions that humans take and some of the consequences of climate change. And some areas may have more, some areas climate may not change a lot, whereas others may drastically change. And so there's that uncertainty, but that doesn't mitigate the fact that on a whole, these ecosystems and this planet is changing. And it's not, it's not a question of if it's happening, it's of the degree to which this is happening.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> so, so if, if, if I've understood you, essentially we're already interfering with these ecosystems, whether we like it or not.
2: I mean, how do you have, how do you have a species that isn't interf- in a, you can't have a species in an environment that is somehow not inter- interacting with that environment. And as humans, we're hugely changing these ecosystems. So our presence itself is already interfering probably negatively in some areas. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't excuse us from the obligation to also help correct that.
1: That's a reasonable place to uh, conclude the discussion. I'm fighting you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's uh... (laughs) a... Imagine what it's like when we're not being recorded. <laughs> it's great. I love <laughs> yeah, like it. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's been an episode of the Farmhouse yeah, Podcast. I think this was a good episode of the Smart House,
0: and um, <laughs> we'll we'll be back. I don't cool. even know. I have yeah. no idea when this is going to release, and and we're on kind of a weird schedule right now. Yeah, it's it's summer. Yeah, it's, uh, we're I'm know. I'm busy. I'm running around doing stuff here. We're going to be living. I yeah. know Jordan's been been busy, so. We'll, we'll try and keep you guys posted on, on, you know, when future
1: things are happening, but uh, plan on keep doing it, so. Yeah, as always, check us out at thefarmcast.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, Farmcast on Twitter? At, I believe it's at
0: thefarmcast on both Twitter and Facebook. Okay. Um, and, and uh, if you know, if you have any friends who you want to tell about, you can yeah. tell your friends about. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to
1: hear an engineer argue with an environmentalist <laughs> about whether or not humanity should be in, involved in the environment. Uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. Good times. Good 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 place to get that.
0: <laughs> Thanks again for listening and we'll we'll talk to you all soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>